Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes 3. I don't know what you're facing. I know what I'm facing this morning. Sometimes we're on the mountain, sometimes we're on the valley, in the valley, but can we trust that our God is in control and thus be able to still our hearts, still our souls? Ecclesiastes 3. Indeed, that's what we were talking about. It's been a couple of weeks. Last week we had our missionary here. Two weeks ago, we were in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. God is in control was the idea, the seasons of life, right? To everything there is a season, the Bible tells us. That in the midst of all of those seasons, God hath made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He hath set the world in our hearts. We have ambition, we desire uh, to, to live this life, and yet He has made all things beautiful in His time. In His time, not in our time, in His time. Can we trust God's seasons? Can we trust God's time? Can we trust that God makes all things beautiful? Can we trust that God can use our mistakes? Can we trust that God can use the hard times? Can we trust that God can use the difficulties? And so Solomon gives us this statement. That God has made all things beautiful in His time. And then as we continue in Ecclesiastes 3, we're going to run across, and into chapter 4, we're going to run across what we might say to be problems with this contention. Speed bumps along the road. Things that come into the heart of a man that cause him to struggle with this idea that God is always in control. You know, there are circumstances that come up in our lives that can cause us to doubt, that can cause us to worry, that can cause us to wonder if this is really God. Is God really in this, or is this the time when God has finally lost control? Is this the time where, where, where everything that God is holding, where something finally slipped out of His fingers? How could this possibly be God? How could this possibly be what He wants? How could God possibly use this and evil can become a big problem can't it this won't be the first time over the next several weeks where we'll talk about the problem of evil see bad things happen to good people bad things bad people bad places they're all around us and these things challenge the assertion that God is in control That God has made all things beautiful in His time. And this morning we're going to consider the first of of several of the challenges to this claim. God is in control. God has made all things beautiful in His time. The seasons of life are seasons which God has ordained. And this morning, the problem we're going to talk about is the problem of corruption. Now, if you're following along in the outline, remember at the beginning of each book, I give you an outline. I gave you the Ecclesiastes outline. Uh, You are going to uh, see for Ecclesiastes 3, verses 16 and 17, the word injustice instead of corruption. And you'll find corruption in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 13 to 16. I actually, as I was studying, I want to swap those. So if you have your outline and you want to switch it, it's not that big of a deal. But um, you could perhaps cross out uh, injustice and put corruption. And then where you see corruption, you can cross that out and put injustice. And as we dig into our text this morning, we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes 3.16. The Bible says this, And moreover, I saw under the sun... The place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Solomon is looking at the first thing that would seem or seek to convince his heart that God is not in control, that God does not have a plan, that God, perhaps he's the great clock winder that winds things up and lets things go, but perhaps there is an evil that is opposing God that God can do nothing about. And as Ecclesi- and as, as Solomon is tempted to think this way, which we know is false, right? That premise has already been um, negated by 
by Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. But as Solomon is thinking about this, he looks at two places. And notice that these two places are both under the sun. And don't forget this. When we use that term under the sun, what it's talking about is that these are two places that he's looking at from a man's perspective. This is not God. It's not God's judgment. It's not God's righteousness where there's wickedness. Not God's righteousness where there's iniquity. But man's place of judgment and man's place of righteousness. And the two places where Solomon looks to find that there is corruption is first, the place of judgment under the sun. Well, where is judgment done under the sun? Solomon is looking at the court system. He's looking at the justice system. He's looking at, he's the king, right? So he's the chief justice of the land. And he's looking at this the, the lesser courts, he's looking at the, the judges that he has, he's looking at it and he says, there's corruption there. The place that is designed by God in society to judge between right and wrong, to avenge evil done against others. Solomon says, I looked at the places of judgment and I saw their wickedness. And then he looks at the place of righteousness under the sun. Where would that be? The place of judgment is the courts, the judges, the justice system. And then he looks at the place of righteousness. In Solomon's day, that would be the temple. In our day, that would be churches. Solomon says, and I looked at churches, and do you know what I found in those churches, in that temple? I found iniquity. Now remember, this is under the sun. Solomon is not considering a place of sinless perfection and godliness. He's considering a place where righteousness is supposed to be. And where righteousness was supposed to be, the temple, what Solomon found there was iniquity. Now as we come across this word iniquity, iniquity is one of three common words that the Bible uses to speak of interrelated concepts concerning a violation of God's will, character, and word. The word iniquity in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, means a twisting or a perversion of God's words, God's will, or God's law. The Hebrew root literally means to bend or to twist. The idea of iniquity is that a person takes that which God has clearly taught in his word and he twists God's word to fit his own ideas. Bending God's word around our wills. In other words, we are making God in our image rather than submitting ourselves to God. We are erecting a God that we want. Right? And so we create a God, or we take the Word of God, and we twist it, and we bend it, and we play mental gymnastics with it to get it to say what we want it to say. And this is the idea of iniquity. Now we see this all the time, right? We see this in churches all the time. We see that churches justify having female pastors by bending God's Word. We see that churches justify divorce by bending God's Word. We see uh, churches justify opposing God's word by bending God's word to make it sound like something it isn't. We see churches twist God's word to allow people to live free from the conviction of sin, allow them to live just like the world, allow them to act just like the world, the world not being that which is around us, but the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is... 1 John 2 defines it. They allow Christians to live in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They take certain sins and they put it on an okay list. Oftentimes in churches, one of those would be gossip, right? It's okay. We ignore that one. And then we somehow justify it with God's word. That's iniquity. It's bending. It's twisting. It's perverting God's word. It can go the other way as well, right? When a pastor stands behind the pulpit and he elevates standards to the degree of God's law, that if a person doesn't act a certain way or dress a certain way, then they are without question wayward. That if a person has a different opinion on music, then he is without a question apostate. That if a person uses a different Bible version, then he is without fail outside of the will of God. That if a person has a disagreement in practice, that we are by default labeling them heretics. All of these going well beyond the written word of God and taking the Bible and bending it and twisting it just a little bit to make it serve our purposes. 
So bending and twisting of the word of God is not just on the end of license. It can be on the end of legalism as well. But both of them are iniquity. Both of them are twisting, bending, perverting the word of God. Now we could talk about so many other examples. We could go through the Bible and talk about men who have done this. We could talk about Pharaoh. We could talk about Balaam. We could talk about several others in the New Testament as well. But I think it suffices us today to understand the concept. Iniquity, bending, twisting, perverting the, will of God, uh, the word of God. Second, we have the word sin. And the word sin is literally the idea of missing the mark. Whereas iniquity speaks of bending or twisting or perverting God's character, will, or way, sin speaks of missing it altogether. You might be aiming for it, but you missed it. This can speak both of that which is intentional as well as unintentional. Anything that's done outside of God's way, anything that misses His mark, is sin. As Paul quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in Romans chapter 3, he says this in verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are all to, are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God. And Paul would continue then in verse 23 to say this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Paul actually defines sin with that second phrase, to come short of the glory of God. Sin does not necessarily mean that I have actively gone out of my way to rebel against God, though we all do that as well, right? Sin means I am not up to God's perfection. I have fallen short of God's standard. And we're all that. We have all fallen short of God's standard. We all... Sinners. That's what it means to miss the mark. To sin. Now the third command, or the third common word, excuse me, is transgression. Iniquity. Iniquity, bending, twisting, perverting the will of God. Word of God. Sin, missing the mark of the word of God. Transgression is to know exactly what God wants of you and then just to say no. Just to rebel. To say, yes, I know what God expects of me, and I'm just not going to do it. Iniquity is when you, if I may give you an example here. Iniquity is when you tell your children that they need to clean the living room. So I tell one of my daughters, you go tell your siblings that I want all of you to go clean the living room. And so she goes up to her siblings and says, dad wants you to clean the living room. And walks away. She has just perverted what I told her to do, right? She's bent it. She's twisted it. She's twisted it to her advantage. You, Dad said, you need to clean the room. And then she walks away. That's iniquity. Trans, uh, sin would be when you tell one of your children to go clean the room. And either through distraction or apathy, they just fail to do it. So you come down 20 minutes later, and they're there playing with the toys instead of cleaning the toys. For whatever reason, they've missed the mark, right? They've missed it. They've failed to do what you've asked them to do. They've fallen short of your expectation for them. Transgression is when you look at your daughter and you say, please go clean the living room, and she looks back at you and says, no. Rebellion. That's transgression. So why does any of this matter? Well, because there are times when these words are used interchangeably in Scripture, and I thought this was a good opportunity to remind you or to introduce you to these three different words. Uh, indeed, all transgression and iniquity is sin, right? If I transgress, if I, if I have iniquity in my heart, these are sins. Uh, a great deal of sin is either transgression or iniquity as well. So they can be used interchangeably, and they often are used interchangeably, but they aren't always, such as in Exodus chapter 4, no, excuse me, 34, verses 6 and 7, where God is declaring himself, and he says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So here we see all three of them mentioned as God being merciful and willing to forgive but certainly if they all three were the same thing, they wouldn't necessarily have been spoken in this way. Now in our case, Solomon considers the place of righteousness. The place where righteousness was supposed to be taught and where righteousness was supposed to be practiced. 
And he says that where this place of righteousness was supposed to be, there was iniquity. The word of God has been twisted. It has been perverted. And as, as we consider the place of righteousness being the temple or in our day, the church, this would make sense, right? Typically in a church setting, you're not going to find nearly as much outright rebellion, just people saying straight up, this is what the Bible says, and we're not going to follow it today. You're not going to find too much of that. But you're going to find tons of people saying, well, this is what the Bible seems to say, but let's explain why it doesn't say what it clearly says so that we can keep doing what we clearly ought not do. And that happens all the time in church. That happens all the time among we who are believers. Why that applies to him but not me, or why we elevate this instead of that just so that we don't have to think about this, because we do that, so let's minimize that and let's elevate those things that we can point our fingers to others on. And so this is what Solomon is considering. He says, there's corruption in the world. There's corruption in the halls of justice. And there's corruption in the halls of righteousness. In the halls of worship. And these corruptions present a troubling circumstance. How is it that corruption in the institutions that God has designed and indeed intended to regulate man's sin nature can fit into God's design? Romans tells us that God has ordained the justice system to punish evil and to reward good. God has ordained the authorities that be. We also know that God has ordained the church to be the pillar and the ground of truth. That God has ordained the church to be the declarers of God's will and the ones that hold fast to God's righteousness to show the world how to be rightly related to God. And can we truly say that God is in control when we see those institutions that are designed to reflect God's nature, justice, and righteousness when we see them corrupted? Now, these are questions that we must face. If not for our own sakes, then perhaps for the sakes of the generation that's coming up. Perhaps for the sakes of the young people that are sitting in these seats this morning. And you're trying to make your decision as to whether or not this God is worth following. And you're trying to make your decision to what degree this God is worth following. How much is this God worth giving for? Is he really worth me? Is he, is he really worth my all? Is he really in control so that I can put my faith in him to the extent that when things don't seem to be going right, or when things just don't make sense, or when things aren't quite what I'd want them to be, that I can trust that if I do things God's way, that it's going to be best for me. And we won't know that, we won't do that if we don't trust him. Can I actually look at churches that crumble all around us? That split, that fall to pieces, that are corrupt. And can I get through those circumstances without taking the example of those churches and saying, well, this must just be a God that doesn't have any control? How many men and women reject God on the basis of human corruption? How many men and women have you known who have rejected moral absolutes on the basis of corruption among those who are called to uphold justice? Well, if I can't trust the justice system, then what good is it? How many men and women have you known who have rejected the gospel or the principles of Christ because of how a corrupt religious system has presented them? I'm dealing with a man in the jail right now who is in this sort of a circumstance. He was wrongly treated by a religious leader when he was young. And now he's had a, the hardest of time not imposing that religious leader's example on God and trying to understand God apart from the representation of God among these corrupt religious leaders. And this ties right in with what Solomon has been experiencing. Perhaps we would seek to find our satisfaction not in material things or explicitly in people, but in institutions. I'm not looking for lasting satisfaction in stuff. I'm not looking for lasting satisfaction in, in emotions. I'm not looking for lasting satisfaction in what the world has to offer. But maybe you're seeking your lasting satisfaction. You are building your life in the foundation and you are, you are founding your life upon this church. Well, what happens if this church crumbles? 
You're building your foundation and you're, you're trusting in and you're, you're hoping in your pastor. Well, what happens if your pastor fails? You're placing all of your hopes for how society is run upon the fact that justice will prevail. What happens when justice doesn't prevail? What happens then? What happens to your spirit? What happens to your perception of God? What happens to your worship? Our stability, our hope, our confidence cannot rest in the institutions that are in place. Even if God's put them there. Why? Well, because the institutions that are in place are still earthly institutions, right? Which means men are involved. And where man is involved, you can bet that there will be corruption, iniquity, transgression, sin. Because that's what we are. And remember, this is one of the primary points of the study in Ecclesiastes. Our hearts, mankind's hearts, we are predisposed to evil. Man seeks his own way at the expense of others. Man wants his own best at the expense of others. This is the natural predisposition of man. This is how we are. This is what we are. And and the only thing that changes that in us is the degree to which we allow Christ to live through us. Jesus Christ is the only hope that we have to not fall into this ourselves. We all want to think of ourselves as naturally good because that's how we feel. I'm going to use another jail example. When I go to the jail, I meet people who are there for any number of reasons, right? Drugs or violence or rebellion, uh, quite a variety. But one of the things that almost without fail I, I encounter when I speak with these men and women, dear men and women, who are, who are seeking answers and uh, they need our help. But what I often find is that they all believe themselves to be something that they aren't. They say, yes, I am this, I'm in jail for this, but that's not who I am, particularly among addicts. I am on this drug or that drug and I use these drugs, but that's not who I am. I stole, but that's not really me. If only people could see the real me, see the heart, the good person inside, then maybe they wouldn't be so hard on me. But here's the problem with that. Regardless of how good a person, his desires and intentions are, regardless of how much in my mind I say I want good things or I want to be a good person, if it doesn't touch my actions, it doesn't really touch the world in which I'm living. They say, I'm really a good person. I wish people could see how good I am. And I look at them and I say, you're not a good person. None of us are good people. See, because there's even deeper reality, isn't there? That when we dig down to the actual heart, what the Bible tells us is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That at the very core, the fiber of our being is what's called a sin nature. No one is good. We read that already in Romans 3. Because even if I'm not breaking the law, even if I'm the model citizen who has the family and who has uh, the house and who gives to charity and uh, all of these things, outside of Christ, I still have a real heart problem, don't I? And this is where we end it. This is where we get to with those in, in the jail setting is that I'm sitting across from them and they're sitting across from me and I'm no better than them and they're no better than me. The only difference is Christ. And even that doesn't have to be a difference. Outside of Christ, I still have a heart problem whether I'm the model citizen or whether I'm not. Because every time I lust after a woman, I've committed adultery in my heart with her already. Because every time I hate that brother in my heart, I've already murdered him in my heart already. Because... Even if I can discipline myself into good actions, the heart isn't changed simply because I've disciplined my externals. And when we see the corruption of justice, it's simply a visual manifestation of a corrupt heart that that undergirds the men that run those systems. Things that they've placed above truth whether that be political expedience or misguided compassion or material gain. And when we see corruption of religion, 
It's simply a visual manifestation of the corrupt heart of man putting other things above the truth. Whether that be the idol of self, or whether that be the idol of knowledge, or whether that be the idol of pride, they've put something above God, and it's taken the place of God. And so whether it's the justice systems, or whether it's the places of worship, if mankind is in them, there will be corruption. So Solomon looked at this world made by God. He sought for that which was most grounded in equity and truth. He found the halls of justice. He found the the halls of worship. And he found justice filled with wickedness. And he found the places of worship filled with iniquity. And if these institutions cannot even be spared from corruption, then what's the point of trying? What's the point of trusting in justice when by doing so is quite possible that the unjust will still get ahead. What's the point of being honest on my taxes when those who aren't are benefiting? What's the point of playing fair in business when those who aren't are getting ahead? What's the point of telling the truth when those who lie get off the hook? Have you ever wondered about that one, children? Brother or sister lies and they get away with it. And you say, man, what's the point of me telling the truth? What's the point of trusting... And what's the point of, of, of engaging in some worship system when it seems like religions oftentimes have within them the worst that society has to offer? What's the point of giving to a church so that the pastor can give his little sermon and then go play golf the rest of the week? What's the point of observing any formal religious observance when so many turn them into idols and end up more, ten times more the children of hell than those who have never been in the church? What's the point of having clergy when they abuse their position to get privileges or pursue wicked and sinful lifestyles abhorred by even those who reject the God of the Bible? Let's consider Solomon's answer to this frustration in verse 17. Solomon says, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every purpose and for every work. Remember, we're talking about seasons of life. And here's the thing about God's justice. It doesn't matter what position you're in. It doesn't matter what title you have. It doesn't matter who you claim to represent. It doesn't matter if you're the layman or the pastor. God's justice is grounded in truth and in truth alone. And there's coming a day when every secret will be revealed. There's coming a day when every wrong will be made right. And on that day, the righteousness of of God will shine forth. On that day, every man will be judged in the clarity of truth. No man will be able to hide behind his title. No man will be able to hide behind his institution. On that day, it will be a man as a man standing before a God who is God. And justice and righteousness will prevail. Every motive will be made known. Every intent will be clearly seen. You won't be able to hide behind a position or behind an institution But then Solomon makes something else very clear, and this is important. This justice we speak of, it will happen. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, but it will happen in God's time and according to God's plan. In other words, there's a reason why God is allowing corrupt men in a corrupt system to persist. There's a reason why God is allowing corruption even in the halls of justice, even in the halls of righteousness, even in places such as churches. When you see corruption in the justice system, when you see corruption in churches, when you see it and you're pained by it, and you should be, and and it, it, it makes your soul ache, and it should. First, you understand that there's coming a day when all will be made known, when justice will be done. But also, we need to understand That it's in God's seasons. And there's a season for that, but it's not yet. That God is still in control. There's a reason. And while this sin without question grieves God, and while corruption will face the wrath of God, we must submit to justice. And not simply to God's holiness, but also to His timetable. So why allow it at all? What is God waiting for? We'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. We're just going to touch on it today. We're going to make it our first point as we apply this morning. God allows evil that God might call men unto truth. 
Why is there still evil? Why is there still corruption? Well, see, here's the thing. Man is inherently corrupt, which means everything man touches will eventually corrupt. And because man will eventually corrupt everything, uh, the halls of justice are not immune to that, nor are churches immune to that. By the way, that's why we are an independent Baptist church. Because if you have a hierarchy, when the man at the top gets corrupted, how many hundreds of churches eventually will corrupt as well? And we've seen that, right? We've seen that in the various denominations today. That they are allowing things into the churches which are abhorrent and appalling. Why? Because the man at the top decided things needed to change. He became corrupt and it filtered down. But if we're independent, then if I get corrupt, it's not going to touch the other independent churches in this area. They're not going to be corrupted by me and I'm not going to be corrupted by them. Because we don't have someone at the top commanding us to be corrupted. That's one of the reasons why we are what we are. Mankind will corrupt everything that he touches. We live in a broken world full of broken people. A world that is lost in sin. But that doesn't mean righteousness cannot be found. God tells us there's coming a day when the world will be judged. And while we wait for that day to come to pass, men are free to live their lives in the corruption of their own hearts. And man will corrupt himself in those institutions that he interacts with. But by that same token, while we wait for the day of judgment, other men and women are also coming to know that Jesus Christ is their Savior, right? This time of corruption is also a time of mercy. This time of corruption is a time of God's patience so that you and I can go out into this lost and dying world and tell them of Christ and bring them in. God has not judged yet so that God can have mercy on more people. So when we think of what we learned about two weeks ago, that God has made all things beautiful in his time, Solomon is telling us that even the corruption of good that we find in this life, though not good in itself, not good in essential character, is in fact serving in the midst of God's plan. That's what we talked about this morning, right? That's what we talked about in Sunday school. We dare not align ourselves with evil because God can use evil, but we dare not pretend as though God can't use that evil for his good. And God is allowing evil to persist in this time so that God may have mercy on more people. But this never operates independent of the reality that God will judge corruption one day. So as we consider the problem of corruption, where even things of true worth and beauty and truth find themselves corrupted by the evil intents of men's hearts, we must also understand and consider some important truths about institutions which can be corrupted. Point number two, don't trust institutions or their leaders. Trust in God. Trust in God alone. The psalmist said in Psalm 118.8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put... You tend to put confidence in man. He said in Psalm 146.3, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. He said in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We need to understand, and allow it to be seared into our hearts, of the futility of trusting in anything that depends upon man. Solomon speaks of two institutions in verse 16, right? First, the rule of law and its arbiters. Second, the house of worship and its leaders. And we must understand that in each of these cases, they are prone to corruption. Now, we live in a society where the rule of law has done a good job for a lot of years. It's not been perfect at all. But compared to a lot of other countries, the rule of law has done pretty good. And because of that, man has had a tendency to trust in the rule of law, to found himself upon the rule of law. To trust that if he just keeps his head down and he does what's right, that the, that the institution will never come for him. But if we trust that, we will be sorely disappointed. If a nation, a civilization is not prematurely conquered from without, it will, without fail, crumble from within. 
And because of the nature of mankind, because we're prone to corruption, this is going to happen. According to Romans 13, the purpose of government is to restrain and to punish evil. Paul exhorts believers, however, to submit to government and the rule of law. He writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, and he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. This is the purpose of government. This is the idea, uh, ideal that government seeks to destroy evil and to confirm good, to bless those that are doing right and to punish those that are doing evil. This is the expectation of God. This is why God has established government. You have perhaps seen the statue of the woman blindfolded, holding in one hand a scale and the other hand a sword. This is one of the foundational symbols of the United States when it became a nation. And it's very symbolic. It reflects a woman. A woman is often pictured uh, a, a picture of an institution or a civilization. And she's blindfolded. She's blindfolded because she is not allowing her eyes to determine what is right. She's not trusting in empathy. She's not trusting in sympathy. One of the big things that we have today with the social justice movement is they're saying, look, I know what what is true and I know what is right. I know what makes sense, but I'm going to trust my heart and my feelings instead, right? And I'm going to dictate my morals based on my feelings. I'm going to dictate my expectations based on my feelings. Well, the blind The blindfolded lady of justice is supposed to be blindfolded so that she's not trusting those things. She's trusting only in the objective. She's holding the scales. And however justice weighs, that's what she's going to go with. And then she's holding the sword to say, and wherever justice is out of balance, I am going to, with the sword, with my might, restore justice. That's the ideal. That's the intent. That's the way it's supposed to be. But the problem is that we are human. And because we're sinful, we have no capacity in ourselves to maintain justice and judgment and equity. And because the halls of justice form the barrier of protection between those who would do evil and those who would be, uh, and the innocent, evil will always target the halls of justice for corruption. If an evil man can corrupt the halls of justice, then they can perform their evil acts without punishment, free from consequence. And so the halls of justice will become corrupt. This is the tendency of the sinful heart of man. But what does this mean for a believer? Well, we've read already the call throughout the Psalms that we would not put our trust in men. The Bible does not forbid us seeking justice. Indeed, as we've mentioned, the whole purpose of human government is to give that to us. But outside of the halls of justice, God gives the believer no right or recourse For personal justice. Consider what Paul would write in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. Paul says this Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. What's the best thing that you can do to fight the corruption that you see around you? Don't be a part of it. What's the best thing that you can do to fight the evil that is around you? Overcome evil with good. God's people are called in every instance to trust in God to be their avenger, to not be resting on institutions to avenge them, to not be resting upon institutions to be free from corruption. But when we uh, find ourselves in a place where we find the institution not doing its part, not doing what it ought, where there is corruption in the system, we won't falter because our trust is not in that institution, it's in the God that ordained it. And you can trust that even if in this life you will not necessarily see justice, that God will take care of you. When the halls of justice fail, we must always remember that it is not God who has failed. 
It is not God's institution that has failed. It is the corrupting reality of man's sinful nature which has failed, and that should never surprise us. But if we put our trust in men, if we put our trust in institutions, then we will be disappointed. And Satan can use that disappointment to find a foothold in your life and to cause you to drift from God. And you know, the same can be said about the church. One of the most prevalent excuses that people give for why they have rejected God is because at some point along the journey of church, or those acting for the church, they have been failed. Someone has failed them. Be it a pastor or a priest who has wronged them, be it a church body that collapsed or split and left them spiritually and emotionally devastated. Many people have given up on God because of the failure of churches to do their part. Many people have given up on God's design, have given up on the institution because of the failure of particular churches. And just like with government, if your trust, if your stability, if your foundation is placed upon a religious institution or its leaders, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Because anything that we humans touch will be imperfect. There's no perfect church. And there's no perfect church because churches are made up of imperfect people. There's a poem that somewhat regularly goes around the internet says this. If you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sake, don't join that church. You'll spoil the atmosphere. If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties cease, then pass by it, lest by joining it, you'll mar the masterpiece. If you should find the perfect church, then don't you even dare to tread upon such holy ground. You'll be a misfit there. But since no perfect church exists made of imperfect men, then let's cease looking for that church and love the church we're in. Of course, it's not a perfect church. That's simple to discern. But you and I and all of us could cause that tide to turn. What fools we are to flee our post in that unfruitful search to find at last where problems loom. God proudly builds his church. So let's keep working in our church until the resurrection and then we each will join that church without an imperfection. The Bible does not tell us that we cannot trust people in the church. Certainly we should. Indeed, the church should be an atmosphere of love and trust. You ought to be able to lean on me and I ought to be able to lean on you. But on the day when the church fails you, on that day when your pastor fails you and you find out just how deeply flawed I am, and I am, On that day, when, God forbid, the church falls short of its God-given duties to you or your marriage or your family. On that day, your world should not crumble and leave you without hope in God. Because God is bigger than the church. Because the church is made up of fallible men, men of limited minds and understanding. And if on the day the church may fail you, and God forbid... I'm not telling you that this church will crumble and fall. I'm not telling you your pastor is going to uh, fall. But what I'm telling you is we're not beyond it. On the day that that might happen, if on that day you turn your back on God, this is what you can know without fail. You turned your back on God because your trust was never actually in Him. Your trust was in the institution that He had built. It was in man. There's only one person you can trust entirely who will never, ever, ever fail you. And that's certainly not me. That's not dad. And that's not president. And that's not judge. It's Christ. He's the only one who cannot fail you because he cannot change. And if all of our hopes and our expectations and our trust rest upon anything other than Christ, we will one day be disappointed. David wrote in Psalm 62, verses 5-8, through My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. God is your rock. In the day that the justice system fails you, in the day that your church falls short, your trust and your hope rest in those institutions, it will falter. But if it's on the solid rock of Christ, then you will stand. You can trust that even though man's institutions have failed, God will not. 
you can stand secure. But let me give you a sub-point to this, which is also important. So don't trust in the institutions and their leaders. Trust in God. But may I say as well, don't throw out the institutions just because they can be corrupted. This is what we call throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? We dare not impose anarchy in place of government simply because government tends towards corruption. In fact, we know that this is why the founders of the United States founded it the way they did. This is why we have a three separate branch governments, the separation of powers. This is why the branches of government are supposed to fight against each other. It's supposed to happen this way. When you see things uh, coming and going and you see people fighting and you say, why can't the president and Congress just get along? You really don't want them to get along that well. That's not what you want. Why can't the judges just get along with the, 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 with Congress? You really don't want that to happen. Because if they're all on the same page, then the system's not doing what it's supposed to do, which is it's supposed to slow down and hinder the process. That's a good thing. The founders put that into our system because they know of the corruption of man. Far easier to corrupt one level of government than three. But even when it does become hopelessly corrupt, and we might understand even now we can see that on the near horizon perhaps. The reality of inevitable corruption does not mean that we should reject God's design. We dare not reject the institution that God has designed simply because man has corrupted it. Indeed, if we have to corrupt everything God has designed because of man's corruption, then we must reject everything. We need to reject the family. We need to reject government. We need to reject the church, that three-legged stool upon which society rests. Why? Well, because they can all be corrupted. Show me a perfect father in this room. Show me a perfect mother in this room. Show me a perfect family, perfect children. Not in this room. As believers, particularly in this age of media, easy access to online sermons, the ability to learn about the Bible as well at home as at church, uh, this can happen with the church as well. I'm sick of the church. The church has failed me. I'm done with God's institution and I'm just going to learn on my own. And this is an easy route, especially in this age. I don't have to commit. I don't have to open myself up. I don't have to make myself vulnerable. I don't have to invest. So I can't be hurt. The problem is it's just not God's design. It's not God's intent. The whole point of Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes 3, remember, is to talk about how God has designed these things. He's created the seasons. You know, God did not create the church with a blind spot. In other words, God did not create the church and then sometime later look down and say, oh no, they've corrupted themselves. I didn't see this coming. Oh no, the church is corrupt. I didn't have a plan for this. God knew. God knew. Did God want it? No, but did God know? Yeah. It didn't surprise him. And the last thing God wants us to do is say, I have ordained to you the church. I will build my church. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as he has commanded us to do. And the last thing he wants us to do is say, because man has corrupted God's ideals, we're going to throw away God's ideals. We can't do that. We mustn't do that. So God tells us to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. In Hebrews 10.25, God tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Some have forsaken the assembly, but don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. Yes, your church is not perfect. Yes, your pastor is not perfect. Yes, everything isn't as perhaps it could be. But don't forsake what God has designed just because man is imperfect. And by the way, maybe the one thing standing between what you would like a church to be and what the church is right now is your involvement. Is you helping the church get where it needs to be. So here's the question. Which is God more prone to bless? Is God more prone to bless the man who, in an effort to avoid the corruption inherent in the heart of man, rejects the God-ordained institutions of the church, its function, and its efforts? Or is God more prone to bless the man who, in spite of the flaws of the church, submits himself to God's design, trusts that God is bigger than man's failures, if only we'll do what he's asked us to do, who pours himself into making the church what it ought to be, and submits to the rest, submits the rest of those things to the judgment of God in his time and in his seasons, according to his purposes under the heavens?
And that's the idea, right? That's Solomon's words. Verses 16 and 17, we'll read them again. Solomon says, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. Solomon didn't say, okay, I'm disbanding Israel's government. He could have. He didn't. Solomon didn't say, okay, I'm tearing down the temple brick by brick. No more temple worship. It's corrupt. He didn't. Solomon says there's coming a time and a place where the corruption will be dealt with. He's not saying, okay, we just need to let the corruption be. There's problems in the church. There's problems in government. We need to deal with them. We need to work on them. We need to seek reform. We don't just allow wickedness to to pervade, but we don't reject the institutions that God has designed and ordained simply because they've been corrupted. One more point as we close. Fourth and finally, sort of third, sort of fourth. Man can find lasting satisfaction. Never forget this. It isn't found, however, in man's justice. You're not going to find lasting satisfaction in the courts of justice. You're not going to find lasting satisfaction in the human institution of the church. Your Legacy Baptist Church is never going to fully satisfy you. Giving you, give you lasting satisfaction. Be everything you could possibly want in this life. Nor will your pastor be. Nor will your father be. Nor will a spouse ever be able to be that for you. None of those institutions that God has ordained. Marriage. Family. Church. Government. They cannot take the place of God. And that's where lasting satisfaction is found. In God alone. And for today's proof, I'd like us to consider our memory work for this month. We've been memorizing Colossians 3.17. Let me give you a few verses leading up to that. I'm going to give you Colossians 3.15-17. to 17, And I've given you a proof verse from the New Testament every week proving that man's lasting satisfaction is found in God and God alone. And here we find it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15-17. to 17. God says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. You know, if you've got Christ as your rock, as your foundation, and whatsoever you do, you're doing it with thanksgiving unto the Lord, uh, whether in word or in deed. He is your all in all. The Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. You are edifying and exhorting one another in love. The peace of God is ruling in your hearts. Then when things waver, when man's institutions falter, when the bad times come, when corruption pervades, you won't lose Christ. You won't lose sight of what God is doing. You won't falter. You won't fail. Because your foundation is that solid rock that is Christ. Let's pray together.